0: Mark chapter 6 is where I'll direct your attention. And as you're turning there, I want you to hear this statement humbly, clearly. Um, And that's this listen very carefully that who Jesus is matters greatly. All right? In fact, it matters so much that heaven and hell hang in the balance of how you answer that question. If you miss the answer, the biblical correct answer to who is Jesus, uh, it's an eternally significant answer. You say he's God. You believe he's God's son sent from heaven to rescue us, to live the life we couldn't live, to die for us and be buried and raised. Philippians 2 is... Actually, what occurred, that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant, became obedient to the death of the cross. I mean, yes, I believe Jesus who he said he was. He's God's son. He's God in the flesh, and he died for us. That's, that's eternally important. Deny that? Oh, he's a good man. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. Anything less than fully God and fully man, you're not born again. John said, no one can deny that Jesus came in the flesh and see God. So it's really, scriptures draw a really straight line on this question. Who is Jesus? And it's an eternally significant question. I ask you to think about that because that really is the thread, the flow that's kind of forming here in the book of Mark. We've reached chapter 6. And we're going to see in these six verses today a completely different scenario in one sense because it's with people that he knows. It's in his hometown. But it's still about the same question. Who is this man? Do you recall in chapters 4 and 5, there were a lot of the folks who were on the outskirts of the villages. He was kind of more of the traveling itinerant uh, kind of preacher. And he would heal and do miracles and cast out demons. And then so folks would hear about it. They would see him and they would believe. They didn't know him more really well, but they had heard about him and they were drawn to him. And some of those would actually believe he was who he said he was. Well, that same thing's happening, and yet it's in his hometown. And it's amazing that those who knew him best 30 years with Jesus, watching him grow up, seeing him with his family, in fact, seeing the first beginning months of his ministry, those who should have known him best actually believed him least. It's quite intriguing. And that's why today as we unpack these six verses, I, I want you to see that we're going to walk away with one take-home warning. It's a truth, all right? But I wanted to escalate and raise the level of what these scriptures teach us today. And so I'm calling this a take-home warning. In fact, would you read it with me? It's a little long, a little wording, but I, I think it's important that you understand exactly what's being said here and how this will surface from the scripture. It will emerge from this text, okay? So let's read it together. Here's our take-home warning we're going to see today. Watch out, and you read with me, it's kind of the point here, let's do it again, ready? <laughs> Watch out that the simply obvious truth about the deity of Jesus doesn't become the scandalized obstacle of unbelief over which you stumble your way into hell. This will all make sense phrase by phrase as we see this unfold and emerge from Mark 6, okay? And I especially want to just kind of continue to build this runway here. I know most of you are probably thinking right now, oh, this is a message about salvation. I've already done that, I'm good. You may very well be good to go. But is that a belief or is that an assumption? And how do you know that? And it's, you know, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians, I think he said this, he said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. This morning I'm gonna ask you to join me in examining yourself. Here's why, if you are, You'll never tire of hearing the good old gospel story again. Amen? I was at a wedding last night. And I was struggling for this week with this, uh, this pressure I feel sometimes as a pastor. I feel like I have to find a new angle, another twist. I got to find a better way to say, you know, what's in the text. And so I feel pressure sometimes just to be transparent with you. Like, man, I hope they're not going to get bored this week. And, and so I went to this wedding last night, and the guy just shared the gospel uh, more blatantly than I ever have. I mean, he just was like that. There it is. And it was beautiful and he did it well, but I mean, he didn't have any new twist to what it should do, or he had no twist about me. It just was the gospel. And my, the whole time he's speaking, my heart is just getting massaged. I'm rejoicing. It's refreshing. We stood up. I told you, I said, man, it is so good to hear what you know, I said, I feel so much better. And so here's what's gonna to happen to you. If you know that God has saved you when you're done this morning, you would be like, man, that was refreshing. We never tire of celebrating the gospel, correct? But if perhaps you have been assuming, I think you'll have an extreme amount of clarity to begin to think through your situation and what you should now do. So Mark chapter six is where we're gonna see this next scenario. Christ comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And the question that continues to be asked by people who come in contact with him is this. Who in the world are you? It starts back in 127, by the way. You can track the questions. 127, 212, uh, verse 28, also 441. It's just the people, when they run into Christ, they're like, man, how are you doing these things? Where did you get this authority? Who are you? This continues, but now in a different location. His hometown, verse 1. He went away in from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Here's a picture of a replica of the synagogue. I want to pause here and show you. I was in Nazareth a few years ago. So just above that bald head there is a picture of a small synagogue. So when you hear synagogue, don't think large, massive structure. In each village, was just a small synagogue. And so this is the actual town of Nazareth. And that's a replica of, of what it would have been like for him to go and teach in a synagogue. Not a ton of people gather. They open the scrolls, the Old Testament, and they would teach. So this is what he's doing. He's teaching in the synagogue in his hometown. Small, little town of Nazareth. And many who heard him were, say it with me, church, astonished. But they're not astonished in a good way. They're astonished in actually a negative way. Because they ask five questions... That at the end of the questions, they refuse to believe this is God among us. This is not the long-awaited Messiah. This is not the Christ. Look what they say. After after he teaches and they're astonished, they say, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So they're not denying that something's occurring. There's something different here, right? Right? whether it's in his wisdom, whether it's in his works, but they can't figure out or at least admit the source of Christ's power, the source of Christ. Like, where did he come from? Where does he have this authority? Here they they go to his physical uh, status. Look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? So they begin... Or I should say, they kind of conclude their questions with asking about his physical legitimacy. I think this may be kind of a a poke at, well, isn't this the the son of that woman who had that illegitimate situation years ago? Isn't this him? Like, how can he be anything? But I think even deeper than that, it's really a kind of a, I don't want to use the word slam, but it's kind of a, a press against his spiritual source. That's why they ask about where he's getting this power, this wisdom. How does he do these mighty works? Here's what's amazing. They look at this, and they can't imagine something so obvious could be going on in their midst. They are convinced it has to be something obscure. And so what do they do? Look at the next verse. Here's what I think is the key phrase in this whole scenario. And they took offense at him. Now, the word offense there is the word from which we get our word scandal. You can translate this phrase as, and they scandalized Jesus. Now, understand some things very clearly up front. There is no scandal here. He's not illegitimate. He is wise. He's working mighty deeds. And it's obvious, but they don't want to admit it. So to get out of their responsibility... They create a scandal. Like, well, th- well, you can't be God. This is not how it works. You... And so kinda, they kind of create their own scandal. They scandalize you. They, they take offense at what he's claiming and what he's doing to try to excuse themselves. But that's not how it works. It makes them feel better in the moment. But the truth is, all they've done is create a, 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 a stone, so to speak. They've created a A rock. They've created a tripping point that every time they come to it, because they can't get over the fact that Jesus is God, then they trip over that, and the end result of that is they're actually tripping and stumbling their way into hell. You see, I don't think in this passage, at least for sure here, sometimes we think about people, you know, heading into hell and this uh, these catastrophic sins and these. Outward visible things that, oh, man, don't you know you're going to hell? We have these kind of human ways of looking at it. These folks here were face-to-face with Jesus in his hometown. I mean, nose-to-nose. They're in close proximity. They are near Jesus. And they're actually heading to hell because of their refusal to believe, even though it's right in front of their face. They find their way out of the obvious We should have been, wow, God's among us. And they scandalize it and create a situation where it makes them feel like, well, we don't have to believe. And that's actually the the thing that trips them over and over on their way to hell. So this phrase is the key phrase here. And they took offense at him. They scandalized him. I want to give you some more insight into this, okay? Because this is a phrase that comes uh, to the surface in several places in the Bible. People taking offense at Jesus. What does that mean? What's going on there? I want to show you two references that I think will help us. Go to Romans chapter 9 just for a moment, would you? Again, I'm just giving you some more insight on this phrase, they took offense to Jesus, to help you understand more of what it means. Romans chapter 9. Here Paul is explaining how the Jewish nation was expecting their righteousness to come from something that they had done through the law. It didn't come that way. It came through God's grace as seen in Jesus Christ. And so the Gentiles were believing. They were being granted the righteousness of God. The Jewish nation in a corporate fashion was not. They rejected him, John says in the beginning chapter. He came into his own. His own did not receive him. So look what Paul says about this situation. He says... Uh, Why did Israel not receive this righteousness, verse 32? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. See, they wanted something to do with it. They, They couldn't imagine grace could be this accessible and this obvious. And so they have, look at the end of verse 32, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see that? What is the stumbling stone? Well, he goes back to Isaiah, and he's going to find the stumbling stone. Watch what he says here, verse thirty-three. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of what's the next word? Offense. That's the same word, scandal. So the Jews were stumbling over who Jesus was. God sent him as the the um, the picture the messenger, the the avenue, the means of grace and truth. But they could not accept it. They were sure they had to have a hand in it. So they reasoned away the obvious. And what they created instead was an obstacle. It was a stumbling stone. This was just an exposure of their unbelief. So this is more about what it means to take offense. It's a stumbling stone. It's a rock that people, they just don't believe the obvious, and so they, they just can't get over it. But the problem is, that's the rock that keeps tripping them all the way to hell. Peter comments on this same phrase. Look at First Peter chapter 2. Just turn to your right for a few more pages. We read some of these verses to open the service. Let me kind of tag team with Taylor here and show you how he finishes up this part about... Um, The stone in Zion that God's laying calls him a cornerstone, chosen and precious there in verse 6. We read through these. And so verse 7 says that for those who believe, this is an honor. And you would say to that, amen. You're thankful that he's to you not a stumbling stone, but a cornerstone, right, church? You're thankful for that. In verse 7, he actually says, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, here's something known factually and historically. Mark 6 is the beginning of Christ's official rejection by the Jewish nation. Because where is he located? In his hometown. So it's a really Jewish place. Now, this would culminate and escalate to where later the Jewish nation would crucify him and reject him. They would say, you are not the promised Messiah. But he actually was. And so for those who believe, he's the cornerstone. He sets the whole building in place and in line. But for those who don't believe... He's become a stumbling stone. And this stumbling stone is equal to this idea of a rock of scandal. It's something that, that self-created because you just can't believe the obvious truth that he is who he says he is and he's doing what God would do, so he's God. Instead, you create this scandal and you can never get over it. And because you will never come to the place admitting who Jesus is, he's God among us, then you will die in your sin And you'll stumble over that rock all the way to hell. Peter says here, this stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. So Peter and Paul both give some insight into this situation in Mark 6. When the Jews there, when they heard him in his hometown, those who should have known the most about him, and technically, I think, practically should have believed him the, the fullest... They're finding it the hardest just to believe the obvious. This is a very sad story, isn't it? Now, Christ adds an interesting comment to this situation. When he realizes they're creating a scandal in order to get around their responsibility, and it's just a stone they're going to keep tripping over, their unbelief, he comments about this. Look at verse 4. He says, "'A prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own household.'" Don't miss this, church. This is an old proverb, and he's explaining that what's happening is not surprising, though it is sad. Would you agree? And you've probably experienced this at times. We've heard the phrases like "familiarity breeds contempt." You've heard phrases like uh, "don't take things for granted." That they lean into the same idea that sometimes you can get too close, and then you begin to take things for granted. You. You assume, you're presumptuous. And Christ is saying, this is not surprising, but I think it's very intriguing that he includes the phrase relatives and own household. Now, if you look at the names in this text, one of them we know. Well, we know several of them, but I mean one of the brothers or siblings. We don't know a lot about his siblings, by the way, in the New Testament. We know about one, that's James. See the first name there? The brother of James. There's Joseph, Judas, Simon. He's mentioned here about his sisters. We don't know much about those at all. But James, we do know something about. He was the last of the group to believe, and it didn't occur until after the resurrection. Did you know that? And yet, who do you think saw Jesus probably more than about anybody? James. I mean, he watched him grow up. He was with him. He saw him every step of the way. Now, do you find something ironic here? Those who should know him best actually believe him the least. There's a warning in that for us, church. Your surroundings do not contain the power to save you. Only the Spirit of God can regenerate your heart and birth you into his family. So he gives this proverb explaining that I'm not surprised this is going on. This is kind of how the human nature works. But then he comments, Mark does, that this is why Christ could do no mighty work there. He did a few mighty works, by the way. And this is a humorous verse, is it not? It says, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, I would think that's a lot of mighty works. If I said to you, hey, how'd church go this morning? You said, ah, not much happened, just a few folks were healed. That'd be kind of funny, you'd be like, Can I go next week? (laughs) So what's happening with this phrase? How can someone say he didn't do many mighty works there, but hey, just healed a few people? It's a comment that has to be taken in what we call scope and context. In other words, what does chapter 4 and 5 show us? That all around the villages, countryside, what's Jesus doing? He's proving who he is by healing people, casting out demons. A woman touches his robe, he calls her out. He says, your faith has made you whole. He goes to a ruler's house. He raises his daughter from the dead. An incredible amount of and impacting miracles by Christ, God's son. He comes to his own hometown where you think, man, it'll be the best here. We all know him. We've seen him. And he's actually the worst. There's only a few things done. So understand, that's a comment that Mark gives to show us in comparison to how Christ's ministry was. His own hometown was the hardest place to serve. Why? Because they couldn't get over the obvious truth staring them in the face. This is God among us. They would not attest to and affirm and believe in who Jesus was. And it was eternally significant for them because as long as they held their stance and had this created scandal they were holding on to, it would be a stumbling block. And would just they'd keep tripping on it all the way to hell. And this is why verse 6 tells us next that he marveled. So in one sense, he says in verse 4, I'm not surprised that this is occurring, but yet it's saddening. He marvels because of their unbelief. You know, verse 6 is a similar emotion to verse 2, isn't it? Remember in verse 2, there was a group of folks astonished there, wasn't there? You see that in your Bibles? They were astonished, weren't they? These verses bookend themselves with the same idea. Christ is astonished. He's marveling. But he's marveling in a negative way like the first group. He's marveling at their unbelief. In other words, how could all of these things occur? How could I live here for three decades? How could these things happen in, right in front of your face and you still maintain unbelief? So, so this, this scenario, when you look at it, the key phrase is the idea of those guys taking offense and scandalizing Jesus. But what, what you've got to see is that it's happening in the very place where they should have known him the best. You see, this is why I said to you, I think what's happening here is there are a lot of people who were assuming, what were they assuming? They were assuming, that's exactly what I told you, that surroundings will get me in. That perhaps a a name or or a good deed or a track record. In other words, something I do, something I'm close to, something I'm part of, something I'm near, that'll count. But proximity can never replace authenticity. Surroundings cannot do what only the Spirit of God can do. And that, when it comes to the for the new birth to being born again, that is only done by the Spirit of God in the name of Jesus. And this is why I want to bring this to bear upon us this morning. This is where I fear for the American church. I, I, I fear for our church in some ways that you could be so familiar with the message of the gospel that maybe you've assumed it's landed and taken root, and it never really has. It's like, well, Todd, what's one way to find out? Here's the beginning way to find out. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he was? That's the beginning point of all true salvific belief. John would say that he wrote these things so you may believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we, we can't miss what's happening here. There's a warning for us to heed. Don't let who Jesus is be an obstacle, a scandal, a stumbling stone. Don't let it become something that, that you're trying to obscure and say, well, there's no way that can be true. When the obvious truth is right in front of you from the biblical historical record, from what we know that God has done through Christ, Only God could do that. Jesus was God. He did what only God could do. And that is the beginning point of all true salvific belief. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. In doctrinal terms, this is called the deity of Christ. Can you say that with me? The deity of Christ. Kind of a $10 word. But it's an orthodox Christian belief that we hold to and stand on. That Jesus is fully God. And fully man. And I just want to say to you, with uh, 100% politeness, but 100% clarity if you don't believe that Jesus is God, you can't be, nor are you, born again. The scriptures draw the boundaries. So here's why To say that, well, I don't believe Jesus is God, I'll find my own way to heaven is to try to find justification through works. It's to try to create your own method. It's to try to pave your own road. You may say, well, I think he was a good man. I think he was a good teacher. I think he may have been a prophet. But he wasn't God. Then you're still relying on your works as opposed to God's grace. And this is exactly what Paul said in Romans 9. That as long as you try to make it about what you've done, uh Then then that's not trusting in God to save you. That's trusting in yourself. And salvation is completely trusting in Christ alone. Now, here's again, here's why I tell you that. I want you to examine have you placed your feet squarely on the ultimate identity of Jesus as the only way to be saved? Like I said, Um, in reference to Philippians 2 that he who was fully God did not consider equality with God something to be held on to but instead he took the form of a servant he took on flesh he humbled himself even to the death on the cross that's the incarnation that's God becoming man it's historically doctrinally accurate and true That is the initial beginning point of belief. We believe who Jesus is, and is eternally significant and central. So that's why our warning is worded this way. Here it is again for us. We must watch out that the simply obvious truth about what? The deity of Jesus, who he is, God in the flesh, doesn't become a scandalized obstacle of unbelief over which you stumble your way into hell. So I think the very first beginning question is to ask yourself this Do I believe that Jesus Christ is God? Now, that's the beginning belief you have to have to be saved. I'm not a discrediting repentance and faith at all. I'm just saying that none of those things work. Quote, unquote, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, his deity matters. Who he is is eternally significant. And I think sometimes the ones who are in the most danger of missing it are those who are the closest to it. That's what Mark 6 says to us. It was his own hometown. So let me just talk to you about that for a few minutes. And then we'll land the plane. You would be in a symbolic way. I would be. We would be like the Nazareth. We're the ones who are close. We have the surroundings. We have the trappings. Everything about it says, yeah, we should know Jesus well. Do you? Or did you just kind of sign a card at some service? Like, yeah, I'll sign there. I'm not sure what I'm signing. uh, But he said I could go to heaven. So, yeah, I'll sign that. I'm not sure about Jesus or what this whole thing. Yeah. So you're kind of just banking on some signature on some card because some guy said that works? Or did you just raise your hand one day in a crusade somewhere or service? Like, yeah, I don't want to go to hell, so yeah, just put me on that list. I'm not sure what I'm actually raising my hand for, but my hand's up. Pray for me. You just kind of thought you were saved. It could be something like that, where you, you really weren't even sure what you were believing. You don't even know today what you believe. But you just kind of have the assumption that, well, since I did that, I should go to church somewhere. I should probably give some money. I I got baptized. I said I should. And so everything for you is just kind of assumptions. Well, that's what they said. I just do it. I'm not sure why. You could very well be one of those persons in Mark 6 that's very close to Jesus. You have a a lot of the trappings. And yet you're stumbling your way into hell because you don't really believe he is who he said he is. You see, surroundings are not the secret. The Spirit of God is. And this morning, I just want to ask you, if you find yourself in that condition, if you find yourself in that situation, would you this morning believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, the only one who can rescue us from our sinful condition? Right. The only one able to bridge the gap between man and God is the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He can do that because he is God. That is the point of belief where salvation begins to land. And, oh, I get it. I see Jesus and how beautiful he is. He died for me. He took my place. I believe. God begins to do his work in us and change us. We turn from our sin. We trust him. None of that occurs until we see Jesus in all of his reality, all of his truthfulness, as the Son of God. This is always brought home to me when I think about some folks that I grew up around. I went to a Christian high school, had a wonderful Christian home, went to a Christian college to train for ministry. So, in, in a lot of ways, for a lot of years, I lived in this beautifully beneficial bubble. I mean, our home alone was a really beneficial bubble, to be honest with you. We had a, my mom and dad are just tremendous people, taught me the word, and just a, it was a great home to grow up in. But add to that a, a Christian school that I really enjoyed going to. I had a, a tremendous church. Uh, I told you about that in the past before. Just We were always involved at church, like five services on a Sunday and different things we were doing. We were going to youth group every, every Wednesday, and then we'd go to visitation on Saturday. And so we just had so much time in church and with home, then the Christian school, and then a Christian college. Um, I was inundated with Christianity. You know that? From the earliest days. It would have been easy for me to say, man, I'm, I'm really close to it all. Like, I'm so close to it, I'm probably just part of it. I thought that for many years, until 14. I remember at 14 years old, sitting and hearing a man talk about salvation, and the Spirit of God moved upon me, and I realized I was lost, even though I had a lot of good things going on in my life. I mean, a lot of good things. I was like kid of the year in the youth group, you know? I wasn't like this weird dude at home. I just just had a really good situation, but I realized in that moment that I would go to hell because none of those good things would do anything for me before God. None of them. My parents' name, my youth group attendance, the Christian school, like none of that, this calling to, to be a preacher, none of that would matter before God. And, man, it was an amazing amount of conviction. I remember leaving. In, in our situation, they would give invitations. And he had us all stand. He said, if you want to be saved, come forward. And I can just, in all transparency, I remember just walking out of that old wooden pew and heading down to the front. And I didn't care at all who was watching me. At 14, that's saying something, okay? I mean, you're in the middle of puberty. You're worried about everybody thinks about you. But I just remember thinking, i got to get saved It wasn't the surroundings. It's not the trappings. I had proximity for a lot of years. I didn't have authenticity until I was 14. I look at some of my friends that I went to school with in both high school and college. And I use friends there in the sense of the Facebook definition, okay? I don't really, we're probably not friends, but we know each other, I guess, from a, in a digital fashion. Some of them have long abandoned Christianity. They've long abandoned God, a biblical view of how we're saved. Often think, well, what's the difference in that? How could you be that close as well? How could you be in the middle of all that and miss it? How could some be in the middle of that and actually get it? Well, that's a longer discussion, but I think one thing we can say is this. Again, it's not surroundings that save. Are you with me? And so I'm coming to you this morning with this warning. You may think that you're in just because you're near. You may think you're attached because you're close. But those aren't synonymous. And the beginning litmus test is what do you believe about Jesus? Who is Jesus? And if you're right now saying, well, I don't think he's God, I'm here to say to you, on scriptural authority, with kindness and compassion, you're not born again. And you're the very person that I would exhort with great pastoral passion to not let that stumbling block, that stone, be a scandal to you. See the obvious. See the word. Hear the Lord. He is God. And trust him and believe him so that you don't keep tripping over this stone, this scandal you created, that you think he's somebody else, and you'll stumble your way all the way to hell in your unbelief. Instead, look to God and say, oh, the obvious truth is, Jesus, you are God. You did what only God could do, and you bridged the eternal gap between me and God. So, Jesus, I trust you. That moment... When you can truly say authentically, man, I'm born again by the Spirit of God. That's why I told you this morning, I'm kind of leaning on you pretty hard. Because this text is not just a text that we should say, well, I guess Nazareth had a rough go of it that day, didn't they? The real point of this is, those closest to him should have believed him the most. And that was the opposite. Let's take warning, church. Let us be on guard. Because here's some things to remember. And just kind of maybe take note of these four things. It's not very long here at all. Just remember that sin is uh, deceitful, unbelief is disguised. You don't always know your own heart. Familiarity can be dangerous, assumptions can be costly. And Jesus' deity matters. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in His name? That's my single question this morning, and I pray that you'll not let the proximity of your life to church be the actual obstacle to your authentic new birth in Christ. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed.